You're listening to the Dwell on These Things podcast, a regular dose of Christ-centered encouragement to put your mind in a better place. Listen in as Pastor John Stonge shares Bible studies, interviews, training, and some of his most recent sermons. We're glad to have you with us today. This morning, we're continuing our look at the book of Colossians, and this might be a dangerous question to ask during a worship service because sometimes I think we're all a little guilty of this, particularly during worship services, but where are you letting your mind drift? That's our question for today. It's actually based on what we're about to look at. Where are you letting your mind drift? And it's a particularly dangerous question when we have a church luncheon immediately afterward because I can already smell some of the soups and different foods wafting through the building, especially when I was standing in the entryway, so I could tell you where my mind has been drifting for a half hour at least, right? Uh, But this morning we're in Colossians chapter 2. We're going to pick up at verse 6, and I'm going to read down to verse 15, and I'm going to just let you know ahead of time before we even read this together There is a section of Colossians 2, and you're going to see this throughout the book as we we continue our study of it, that gets particularly theological. There are certain things that the Apostle Paul condenses in one paragraph, even, that you could look at and say, all right, that in and of itself is very deep theology, very deep deep concepts that we could spend a lot of time on. And, uh, and so you'll notice that in some of the things that we're looking at today, even though I know we won't have probably as much time as we could dedicate to some of these concepts, I still want to make sure that we address them. And so uh, let's look together, Colossians chapter 2, starting with verse 6. This is what it says. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority." In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the opportunity that you give to us in a moment like this to be able to look at it together. And Lord, we pray that as we spend this time now looking at your word, that you'd speak to us with your power, that you'd give us clarity of understanding, that these would be the type of things that you allow us to really allow to soak into our thinking and into our living, that these would be concepts that we would understand because they're foundational concepts of doctrine, foundational concepts that that go right to the core 
of the nature of our faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that these things would permeate our minds and permeate our hearts today, and that these would be concepts that we live out as we trust in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for this time, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, it's no secret that I like to daydream. All right, I actually think it's one of the things that I do most in this world. I, I am a daydreamer. In fact, I often joke about the fact that I dream more when I'm awake than when I'm asleep. And that is the honest truth. And sometimes I'll even find myself daydreaming while I'm driving. I'm missing exits. I kind of snap out of it along the way. And I'm like, oh, I wonder where I am, right? Have you ever done something like that? Especially if you're listening to good music. Happens to me more than I'd like to admit. But I dream about my goals. I dream about future plans. I also like to dream about things that I cannot yet see with my eyes, things that I could only see by faith at present. That's the type of stuff I like to daydream about. Now, they say you could tell a lot about a person by what they daydream about. You could actually tell a lot about them. The places our minds drift tend to, to be toward the things that we desire. Uh, our minds tend to drift toward what we are convinced will make our life better in some way. You'll dream about wherever you place your hope. So you'll dream about what you believe will bring you comfort in the midst of pain. You'll dream about your ideal life. These are the type of things that will come to your mind in some of these these thoughts that aren't even pre-planned, right? You just find yourself daydreaming toward these things. And when when we're daydreaming, when our minds are drifting, when when we're not really even putting a whole lot of planning or or direct thought into, into what we're focused on, I'm curious how prevalent Jesus is and how prevalent his kingdom is in our thinking. So when we're thinking about things, when we're daydreaming, when our minds are drifting, how prevalent is Christ? How prevalent is his kingdom? And does our our concept of an ideal life, does it center around him? Or do we think that we'll find that ideal life through things that are bound to this earth and destined to decay? I think that's a useful question to ask in light of the scripture we're reading today and in light of what most people pursue, because most people are convinced that they will find the ideal life through things that are bound to this earth and things that are destined to decay. And when you look at Colossians chapter 2, starting with verse 6, the portion we just read, and we'll work our way through it together today, when you look at it, you have Paul giving us a glimpse of what our minds should understand. He focuses a lot on the things that the minds of the Colossians should be, should be focused on. And the things that our minds should be drifting toward, and the things he wanted their minds to be drifting toward. And as he does elsewhere in this letter to the church at Colossae, you have Paul reminding us of what Jesus has done on our behalf, and how his word and how his presence really does lead us to the kind of life that is even better than we might naturally dream about. And there are a variety of things that Paul gives us here that we're going to just treat as counsel. So I'm actually going to uh, give us like a lot of action statements today, five main things that I actually want to share with us today, based on what Paul talks about here. And they're all really calls to action. And the first call to action is this, take a walk, take a walk. Now, why am I saying it that way? Well, look at what he says here in verses six and seven of Colossians two. He says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, today it's snowy, but I have to say I always appreciate a sunny day. I always appreciate a sunny day, uh, especially when we're in the midst of the heart of winter, right? It feels like you're cheating winter. 
Uh, it was a nice surprise the other day, really for a few days this week, but the other day in particular, it was rather nice. And in, in the midst of all this cold and snowy weather, we had a break day. We had a couple break days. We had one day that was even particularly sunny. And uh, I noticed one of my daughters, she took the opportunity to do all her work outside. She did everything outside. She's like, as much sunshine as I can collect, as much vitamin D as I could collect today by being outside, I'm going to collect it. And then she capped off her day with a nice long walk. And I thought, that's a good way to spend a day. I could tell it was a definite mood booster, and we need stuff like that in the midst of the winter sometimes. And I know that for her, that was certainly a benefit, and she enjoyed it. And when you look at the concept of walking, this whole concept of how we walk, it's stressed all throughout Scripture. You see this as a concept that comes up over and over again. And when that term is being used, it's frequently being used as a synonym for the word live. So it's talking about this idea of how you walk. It's talking about how you live, how we live in this world, how we're progressing through this world. Are we walking with Christ or are we running away from Christ? It's a synonym for how we're living. And that's how Paul's using that word in this passage. He's encouraging us to show that Jesus is Lord of our lives by how we walk, by how we live. We're showing who is Lord. Is Christ Lord of our lives? We see that in how we live. Our daily walk demonstrates our trust in Jesus. Our daily walk demonstrates whether or not our hearts and our lives are submitted to his lordship. And I also like how in the midst of this, you have Paul giving us a great analogy to help illustrate the kind of life that we're called to live. And the way he describes it here, he talks about a life that's deeply rooted in Christ. So you picture this maybe like a tree, like a large tree with deep roots, something like that. It's a life that's deeply rooted in Christ. And a life that's deeply rooted in Christ is also a life that's being built up and being established in the faith. That's a picture of a very good life. And that's the kind of life that the Lord desires for each of us. And that's the kind of life that the Apostle Paul was trying to nudge the Colossians to value and to understand more and more. Because it's a life that's both fruitful and thankful. It's a life that's very fruitful. It's a life that's very thankful. It's a life that's good. It's a life that expresses gratefulness to Jesus because he's on the forefront of our mind. So when he's talking about this idea of the way we walk, and even as we're looking at this and saying, all right, let me just you know, make this a statement of action. I got to take a walk. Well, what kind of walk? Well, it's a walk with Christ where we're walking, where our life is ultimately submitted to his lordship, where our life is rooted deeply in him. And this is the picture that Paul is painting for the church at Colossae. And he's encouraging them, even though many of them are young believers, he's saying, this is the life that could be yours. This is a good life, rooted deeply in Christ, growing in Christ, established in your faith. And then he progresses a little bit further, and he gives them another action statement or an action concept that I'm summarizing with the statement. But I think he's telling them here to avoid mental captivity. As you're taking this walk, avoid mental captivity. Well, why am I saying it that way? Look at how he phrases it in verse 8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So I think he's encouraging them, avoid mental captivity. Don't be taken captive. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Now, in every generation, we even talked about this last week some too, but in every generation, there are ideas that circulate. There are ideas that become common. There are ideas that circulate among people, and ideas produce actions, or the way I often phrase it in my own mind, beliefs produce behaviors. 
The behaviors you're going to see in my life are rooted in whatever I believe. Everything is rooted in a belief. You know, if I eat food at lunch, which I have every intention of eating much food, why am I doing that? Well, I'm doing that because I believe that it's going to somehow improve my life or improve my health or at least make the the rumble in my stomach go away, right? It's a behavior that's based on a belief. The way you drove to gather together for worship here today was based on your belief of what you thought was proper and safe and wise to do on a day with weather like this. The way you're dressed today is based on a belief that this is appropriate to dress for this particular season of the year. Beliefs produce behaviors. The information you and I feed our minds, that information is going to come out somewhere in our lives. That's why governments frequently try to silence ideas throughout the world. If they don't like the ideas that people are starting to circulate, sometimes they'll try and silence those things and squelch them so that they can continue to assert dominance. It's also why Satan attempts to fill this world with all kinds of falsehood. Because he doesn't want to see a world full of people that have a clear understanding and a clear application for the fruit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he tries to squelch information, tries to hide information, or tries to steer people away from the truth toward falsehood. And the church at Colossae, when you look at some of the things that the Apostle Paul was saying about them in the verses that have preceded where we're at today... They had a reputation for being firm. I think they were a church that had a reputation for being rooted in their faith. But there were also many things that were threatening their continued growth. And there were things that were threatening their long-term stability. And what you had going on in that particular context, you have the philosophies of their day, philosophies that were based on worldly concepts that were being freely circulated throughout the course of their city, and many people were being taken captive by that manner of thinking. And the fruit of these, uh, these forms of deceptive thought were starting to come out in the lives of the people that believed these sorts of things. And so Paul was warning the church at Colossae, saying, listen, you're new believers in Christ. You're surrounded by philosophies that are not of God. Don't be taken captive by those things. Don't buy into this world's perspective. Don't buy into the common narrative that permeates your culture. See beyond it. Have an eternal perspective. That is awesome counsel for you and I living in the generation we live in right now, especially as believers living in what they call the information age, because we are surrounded by every thought, and not just the thoughts of our era of history, but every thought from every era of history. We have more access to information than any generation that's ever come before us, which calls for more discernment, and we need to be discerning people. So we're not taken captive by the philosophies of this world or the empty deceit of this world. And so Paul was warning the Colossians of that, but that's something that you and I should be careful about as well because there's a lot of things that would love to permeate our thinking. Through the intervention of the Holy Spirit, I believe that we could avoid mental captivity. I believe that we could be people who don't allow ourselves to be allured by the false doctrines of this world. I feel like we could avoid the deceptiveness of this world and the the always changing cultural beliefs that are prevalent in the midst of the culture that we're in. We could avoid the things that are contradicting the clear teaching of Scripture by understanding the Scripture. We could also avoid things like cults. You know, it's not always just, you know, deceptive philosophy. Sometimes there's also cultic cultish things that are prevalent. I'll give you an example of this, something I noticed even just the other day. In fact, the other day I, I, I went to my mailbox and I opened up the mailbox and there was a letter and it was, it, uh, it was handwritten. But you know how sometimes you get junk mail that looks like it's been handwritten? 
And you look at it and you're like, I don't know, is this junk mail? It looks like it's handwritten, but printers are really good now. You know, they can make it look like it's, it's handwriting. And I was like, no, I actually think this is handwritten. And it was from a somewhat local address. And, um, and it was a letter that I believe was actually sent to my, my neighbors as well. So it wasn't just sent to me. I think my neighbors got this letter as well. And it was a letter that, that had some elements. When I opened it up and read it, there were some doctrinal things. There were things even referencing Jesus, things referencing God, things referencing the Bible. Variety of things in it. I was like, okay, I wonder what this is all about. And so I looked at it, I read it, and it had some true statements mixed in with some falsehood. And then it was encouraging people, if they read this, to then visit a website, which I'm sure would take people down a rabbit trail of all kinds of falsehood. It was something produced by one of the better known cults. I won't give them airtime by, by using their name, okay? But it's one of the better known cults. And I was like, oh, wow, they, they wrote me a letter. How special, you know? And uh, I'm assuming they wrote that to multiple people in my neighborhood. But here's what I noticed as I'm reading it. This is what I was thinking. I couldn't help but noticing how persistent and dedicated that person who happened to write that, that stuff out happened to be. And they were, con- they were dedicated to the task of persuading other people to believe their lies. Committed to the task of deceiving people without realizing they were deceiving people. Buying into falsehood and then encouraging people to jump in to that falsehood with them. And I thought it was particularly tragic because I'm looking at the dedication there and thinking, you know, what about those who have the truth? Are we, are we as dedicated as those that have bought into that falsehood? Are we as dedicated to making the true gospel known or are we a little too passive sometimes about letting the gospel be known? I think sometimes we do a good job, but I think other times I look at certain contexts, I think we're probably a little too passive. We could step up our game. And here you have somebody going through the, the, my neighborhood basically trying to convince me and my neighbors to believe their, their cultish beliefs. But we can avoid mental captivity. And how do we avoid mental captivity? Through faith in Jesus Christ, which results in us being indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? He points us to truth. He reminds us of everything Jesus taught. He makes the Word of God clear to us. As we read the Word of God together, the Holy Spirit makes the Word of God clear to us, and He plants that like a seed deep in our heart, and our faith grows, and it's rooted, and it's founded on the truth. And this is the type of thing the Apostle Paul was encouraging the Colossians to understand. He wanted them to avoid mental captivity. But a big part of that was ultimately going to be they needed to have a fidelity to the truth of the gospel, to the truth of God's Word. But here's the thing, and this is where Paul starts to get particularly theological. He's been theological up up to this point, but you're going to see him really trying his best to make sure that the Colossians, in this brief letter, understand good theology. Now, let me give you a glimpse of what he's talking about here, because when you look at verses 9 through 12, what he does is he gives us an excellent summary in just a few verses that helps us know who Jesus is and know what he's done. So if you want an excellent summary, an excellent theological summary that can help you summarize who Jesus is and what he has done for us, we actually see it in Colossians 2, verses 9 through 12. Follow along with me. This is what he says. He says, for in him, so he's saying in Christ, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him 
from the dead. Now, let me pause there because there's a lot of content there. And in fact, I recently had a conversation with a family member. She told me she was doing a bunch of research on some of the prevailing false beliefs that are taking place or or gaining some traction, I guess I could say, in the midst of our culture right now. And I noticed that she was spending a lot of time immersed in some of that teaching. And so I cautioned her. And it's a caution that I'd like to share with us all today. It's a caution I'd like us all to be aware of. I said, you don't need to know everything about every form of false teaching that's circulating today. You don't need to know all those details. You're never going to be able to keep track of it all. A better approach would be to spend your time studying the truth and filling your mind with the truth because then you're going to be able to know how to handle falsehood and how to spot falsehood when it comes your way. And I believe that's how the Apostle Paul was attempting to try and help the believers at Colossae in putting together that summary statement that I just read in those verses. He wanted them to know who Jesus is, and he wanted them to know what he has done for us. And so he clearly explains both things in a brief way. And there are several foundational truths about Jesus that you have Paul explaining in this passage. And I think it's pretty safe to guess that these are areas of emphasis that were being shared to try and address some of maybe the inaccurate beliefs that some of the people in that culture were believing or some of the heretical things that were being taught in that culture. And uh, so you have the Apostle Paul trying to counteract falsehood that's spreading in that city by emphasizing deep, clear doctrinal truth. And so for starters, you have the Apostle Paul addressing and emphasizing the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. Did you catch that when he did that in verse 9? He stresses the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. What does Scripture teach us about Jesus? Scripture teaches us that Jesus is 100% God. And Scripture also tells us that at the same time, He's also 100% man. Now, that's unique. There's no one else that you could point to and say that that's the case. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. And that's why Paul said it this way. He said, in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. 100% God, 100% man. And then from there, you have the apostle. And by the way, part of the reason why, uh, and I won't go down this rabbit trail too much, but but one of the things that uh, is believed was one of the thoughts that was prevalent in Colossae was that they looked at matter and they said matter is intrinsically evil. You know, there's a a line of thinking that said matter is intrinsically evil. And so you have the Apostle Paul saying, that's interesting because you have Jesus coming to this earth and taking on actual flesh. But yet he's 100% God, 100% holy, and he took on flesh, 100% man, sinless. So matter cannot be intrinsically evil. Do you know that matter is intrinsically neutral? Like the chair you're sitting on, is it evil? No, but it could be used for a good thing and a bad thing, right? It's a good thing if it helps as a tool for worship as we're gathered together so we have a place to sit. It's a bad thing if we use it to hit somebody over the head with it, right? So if we don't hit people over the head with it, but we use it to sit on, then I guess it's a useful thing. It's just a thing, right? It doesn't have a nature. And so here you have the Apostle Paul attempting to help clarify some things about Jesus and even counteract some of the false teaching that was going on in the city. And from there, Paul stressed that believers are filled with the presence of Christ when we place our trust in Him. We are made complete. We are made full through Jesus. So when he's talking about these things, he's saying your life is going to be incomplete if you do not have Christ. 
You're always going to be trying to search for something in this world, in the material world, to satisfy the longings of your soul, but it's not going to be satisfied until you find Christ, until you receive Christ. We're made complete, we're made full through Jesus. And then Paul also stresses that Jesus is above all earthly rulers and spiritual powers, that Jesus is Lord over all creation. Wouldn't you say that that's a lot of doctrinal information to try and cover in just a few sentences? The divinity and humanity of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, the way Jesus completes an incomplete person. And then you have Paul pointing out two different covenantal signs that God has given believers throughout the centuries. So there's almost like some summary statements of Old Testament theology and New Testament theology in some of these things that Paul's saying here. And these signs were meant to, to physically demonstrate what God is accomplishing spiritually, but you have Paul here bringing up circumcision. Well, we're not going to go into all the details of circumcision, which I know you're grateful for, but that was a sign of the old covenant. And baptism, sign of the new covenant. But Paul isn't stressing here their physical application, even though circumcision is something done physically and baptism is done physically. But he's saying, no, there's a spiritual reality that I'm emphasizing here because circumcision never saved anybody and baptism never saved anybody. But there is something that the Lord does for us internally as we trust in Jesus Christ. There's a circumcision you experience through faith in Christ. There's a baptism you experience through faith in Christ. He's pointing out the facts that our hearts have been circumcised through Jesus as our old nature is cut away and we're given a new nature in Christ. And we've also experienced a spiritual baptism in that our old life died and was buried and we've been cleansed from sin and raised to new life in Christ. And so what Paul's trying to do in just a few short verses is make it very clear to us who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And I think he does the favor here for them, even though he's going to elaborate on all sorts of things related to Christ and the work of Christ in coming verses still, but he's really giving them a moment here where they could come back to a summary statement and say, wait a second, let me just summarize this real quick in my mind. Who is Jesus and what has he done? And they could look at these verses here. There's a lot of theology in these verses. And I think sometimes when people come across verses like this, it can be very easy for them to overlook this because they'll look at this and say, I, you know, I'm not really sure what's going on here. It's talking about some circumcision. It's talking about baptism. I'm not sure what's going on here. And then sometimes they're scared away from attempting to understand these things, but they're, they're deep concepts, but they're not impossible to understand. And I think when we take the time to understand who Jesus is and what he's actually done for us, we can combat the persuasiveness of false teaching more accurately. Paul goes on to show a couple other things here that I want us to notice in our time together. He also encourages us to live a debt-free life. Well, what do I mean by that? Look at the way he phrases it here. When you look at verses 13 and 14, he says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And then in verse 14, he says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Isn't that a, a, a beautiful couple sentences here? Isn't that a beautiful couple sentences when you think about what Christ has done for us? By the way, anyone who has known me throughout the course of my adult life knows that my perspective toward financial stewardship 
it's gradually matured over the course of time. You know, if you've known me throughout the course of my adult life, my wife would be someone who has known me throughout the course of my adult life, right? We started dating when we were teenagers, so she has seen this develop over time. At one, one period in my life, I was someone who was very comfortable with debt. I was not uncomfortable with it at all. In fact, I, I almost treated it like a game. I treated it like a game. I treated it like a game that could be played. I played that game way too regularly, by the way. So I thought it was wise to use debt to do, like, whatever, right? So I'd, I'd use it to, and I thought, I was convinced that I was using it in smart ways because I'd use it to do things like obtain investment property. We bought investment property up in the Poconos. I was like, okay. And the truth is that did kind of work out a little bit. Uh, so I was like, cool. And then that led me to do other things. And, and I thought, you know, this is a great way. I could use debt to get things um, that I want before I can really afford them. And so I could just take on more debt and do all this. And what I didn't realize is that that game I was playing was robbing me of, of peace of mind. It was robbing me of quality of life because I was playing a financial game with debt. That I, and I, I really didn't have anyone telling me, hey, you're, you're getting a little too close to the fire with that. Nobody in my life was saying, don't do that. Everybody in my life was like, this is the, the mindset of our culture. If you can make the payments, you're good to go. What do you think? If you make the payments, you're good to go. What that doesn't take into account is the fact that sometimes you experience surprises in your life. And then those surprises come up, and sometimes they can interrupt your ability to make the payments. And then when you can't make the payments, you know what happens? You stop sleeping, right? You stop sleeping. You stare out windows in the middle of the night, and you look outside, and you're like, I can't make payments. I've got a wife. I've got four little kids. Eventually, I became very frustrated with owing money. And I'm like an all-or-nothing personality. You probably noticed that, right? It's like all-or-nothing. Some of you have a little bit more balance in your mind and in your life probably than I do. And I thought, you know what? I don't ever want to worry about having to make another monthly payment ever again. I don't ever want to think about it because I don't like how it makes me feel. And so I thought, all right, I'm going to dig my way out of this. I had credit card debt. I had car loans. I had student loans. And I had a mortgage. It's like, I'm going to dig my way out of this, and I don't care how long it takes me to do it. I'm going to dig my way out of it. You know how long it took me? 14 years. 14 years. It wasn't like an overnight thing. 14 years. And Andrea and I were talking yesterday. Yesterday was the one-year anniversary of when we paid off our last debt. We had, it was our last mortgage payment a year ago yesterday. No more debt. All gone. There's nothing. Don't owe a cent to anyone in the world. First time in my life, February 12th of last year. 14 years of sacrifice, and I don't ever want to go back to owing another cent to anyone again. And in many ways, I'll tell you what, my mind's experienced a form of liberation from things that used to be a source of stress for me. And I don't want to trade that blessing for anything less. And if I may, and I know you didn't come for financial advice today, and that's not really where I'm going with this anyway, but if I may, let me encourage you to consider pursuing debt freedom as well, even if it takes a long time even if it takes you 14 years or maybe even longer to get there. Let me encourage you to consider it. It's actually awesome. I promise it's worth it. And you know what else it does? When you don't have a debt in the world, it frees you up to be generous in ways that you didn't feel like you could be generous before because you were fearful about not being able to pay those debts. Now, why am I bringing that up? Well, first of all, I was kind of excited about the fact that it's been a year, right? I haven't lost the feeling. You know, and as Boston says, maybe it's more than a feeling, you know? But Paul uses the concept of debt here in this passage. 
And he's using that concept because it's something we're all familiar with. In fact, if you look at the Roman culture, many of the people were in a form of slavery that was really, it had to do with the fact that they were debt slaves. And it was a huge part of Roman culture. It was a huge part of something that people were familiar with. And, and just like now, I mean, we're all familiar with debt. We've all experienced the highs and the lows of it, right? And he uses the concept of debt here in this passage because he's actually trying to take something we're familiar with to illustrate the dreadful position that we were in regarding our standing before God. Not before earthly creditors, but before God himself. And what he's getting at here is this concept that our sin was a debt obligation that we were not able to pay. Something that really could keep you up awake at night forever, right? And we kept piling more and more and more onto that debt. They say, what's the first rule of getting out of any debt? Stop adding to it, right? Go the other direction. Stop adding to it. Well, when you think about the debt of sin that we had accrued, we were adding to it and adding to it and adding to it more and more every day. And many people are going to stand before God someday with that debt unsettled. It'll be an unsettled debt. They're going to come before him and be presented with a record of debts that have not been paid. And not, not physical debts in a financial sense, but the debt of sin. That's a dreadful thought. And the truth is, that motivates me to share the gospel with others. I know that that motivates many of you to share the gospel with others, because that's a dreadful thought. The idea of coming before God with a load of debt that, can't be, that we can't pay, that is unsettled. And what does Paul tell us here Christ did for us? If you've come to, to, to Christ, if you've trusted in Christ, he's done something very significant for you that you would particularly understand if you know the emotional feeling of having debt. Through faith in Christ, Paul makes it clear that our debts are settled. They're settled. He tells us that the record of sin that stood against us has been canceled. Those of you with student loans, if, uh, if that got canceled, do you think that would be a weight off your shoulders? Of course it would. Those of you with a mortgage, your bank was like, you know what? We feel real bad about all the interest we've charged you through the years, and uh, this one's on us. Enjoy the property. Do you think you'd be like, oh, no, don't, no. <laughs> Wouldn't it feel good? And when we trust in Christ, we are completely forgiven of every transgression. The debt is settled. It's completely wiped away. And here, Paul says it was nailed to the cross. It's already been paid. Christ already paid it for you. There's no, you don't have to pay the debt of your sin. If you trust in Jesus Christ... What ends up happening is you'll stand before the Father. When you give an account for your life, you're going to give an account, but you're going to have an account that's emptied of sin and filled with the righteousness of Christ. So you're not going to come before Him with that debt still outstanding because Christ paid the debt for you. Now, there are plenty of people in the world that say, I accept that. I trust in Jesus Christ and receive that gift. And there are many people in this world that are still trying to pay that debt themselves. And they can't get out of the debt because they keep adding to it every day. It's not even logical to think that you could pay it for yourselves. Most people in this world, if they even believe in God, they think they're going to stand before him someday and give him a list of all the righteous things they did. He's going to look at that and be like, no, that's not what can, that can't pay this debt. 
It never wiped it away. But if we trust in Jesus Christ, His righteousness is added to our account, and that satisfies the account. The debt becomes null and void. It's done. It's paid for. That's offered to you. I don't know where your heart is right now, but I would encourage you to accept that because, you know, in the physical sense, we could talk about being debt-free. Yeah, that's a wonderful feeling, but it's not anything compared to the feeling of knowing that the day can come when you can stand before your Creator and know that you do not owe a debt of sin. That your, that your slate has been wiped clean. That your indebtedness was nailed to the cross. That Christ took it upon himself and paid it for you. And all you had to do was simply trust in him. Receive the gift is what he encourages us to do. And there's one other thing, and this is where we'll finish today. And I think it's really useful, even in light of what we just said. You have Paul encouraging the church at Colossae, look, don't submit to a defeated foe. You don't have to submit your life to a defeated foe. Look at what he says in verse 15. He says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So when Jesus came to this earth, think about what he did. He made a spectacle of the earthly rulers who stood against him and the spiritual authorities who live in rebellion against his holiness. He made a spectacle of them both. In the Garden of Eden, so let's go back to the start of human history. In the Garden of Eden, you have Adam, and Adam is given the choice of life and death. And he chose death by rebelling against the Lord. But Jesus came to this earth to live the perfect life that Adam didn't live. Jesus, When Jesus came to this earth, he did so to fulfill all righteousness by keeping the word of God that Adam rejected. And Jesus confronted Satan with truth. Then he defeated Satan and defeated the power of death when he rose from the grave. Jesus triumphed over sin, Satan, and death. And since he, and as Paul says it here, and since he's disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, we don't need to submit our lives to a defeated foe any longer. The victory Christ secured is a victory that he shares with everyone who will trust in him. So our lives and our minds no longer need to drift toward the hollow promises of this world. Our minds and our our lives no longer need to drift toward the deceitfulness of satanic influence, however it's manifested in our day-to-day lives. We don't need to bend the knee to, to spiritual authorities that are actually working against us. Our lives can be spent in joyful submission, in joyful adoration, in joyful loyalty toward Christ who paid the debt and set us free. And so Paul's looking at the church at Colossae, and he's saying, do you understand these things? And I like looking at this in our present day because I think it's just as relevant for us in the age that we live in right now as it was relevant for them. Where does your mind drift? Where's your mind going? Where where are your thoughts going? Are they going toward Jesus, or do you think something else can satisfy that void that we naturally have in our soul, void that we naturally have in our heart? Christ can satisfy it. And here you have the Apostle Paul helping us understand who Jesus is, what he's done, and why Christ and his work is sufficient for what we truly need. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And for the privilege that it is to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this and to be able to think about these things today and, and really meditate on these concepts. Lord, we know that it's so easy for our minds to drift in directions that are unwise and unhelpful. And then we look at a portion of Scripture like this, 
and you make so many deep theological applications, you make them abundantly clear to us as your spirit illuminates our minds and helps us to understand things that we wouldn't naturally grasp. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your love, and thank you for all that was done on our behalf through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we're grateful for the fact that we can come before you knowing that we incurred a debt that we couldn't pay, but that your son paid it for us. Lord, it's such a tragic thought to think that that offer is being made in this world, and yet it's being rejected by billions of people at present. One option to have the debt settled, yet it's being rejected. But yet we also rejoice that there are many who accept what your son has done on our behalf whose debt has been canceled, who can go throughout the course of their lives recognizing that that when we daydream about the day we stand before you, that doesn't need to be a day that we dread. That can be a day we look forward to. That could be a day where we we look at and we say, all right, now I'm going to get to see the, the culmination of a variety of things that you have already promised me. And you've told me you've got good things in store for those who trust in your son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, we thank you for these things, and we thank you for these reminders from your word. We thank you, Lord, that that ultimately we have the privilege to walk with you daily, and that you promise to never leave us, to never forsake us, to never abandon us, but to be with us in the midst of everything we endure. So we commit our lives to you, Lord. We commit this world to you as well, and we pray that the message of, of the truth of your gospel would be openly and freely communicated through the lips and the lives of all those that you've drawn unto yourself, and that many more would come to know you. Lord, we even know that tonight there'll probably even be some opportunities that, that throughout this world in the midst of Super Bowl weekend, we know that there are, there are evangelistic efforts that, that'll be employed throughout the course of this world, even this evening. And so, Lord, we pray that they would be fruitful, that the seeds of your gospel would reach hearts and minds this evening, and that many would come to know you as a result. And Lord, we're just grateful for the privilege that you gave us to be able to gather together to worship you right now. We pray, Lord, that we would walk with you faithfully, and we thank you, Lord, for the fact that you are present with us. And we commit ourselves to you now and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. God looks at your heart, not your gene size. Do you know the verses yet still stress over your body? Oh, I get it. I was raised in church, but I struggled with food, eating disorders, and my body for decades. I'm Heather Creekmore, host of the Compared To podcast, where we talk about all things body image and comparison from a biblical perspective. We get real about the pressure to focus on appearance in a culture where looks seem to matter most. Whether you're wrestling wrinkles or battling the scale, Compared To Who is the show for you. You'll laugh a little and be encouraged a lot. If you're ready to stop comparing and start living, visit lifeaudio.com to listen and subscribe.